This is Limit Up, the place where we explore markets, strategies, and trading psychology to take your trading to the next level. Hey, traders, this is Eddie Horn from Top Step Trader. This is the latest episode of our new podcast, Limit Up. This is where we talk with traders, market participants, and trading psychologists to help you progress in your trading. We're going to be doing episodes every week, so make sure you subscribe to via the iTunes or the Android Play. I'm joined here today with Danny Hodgman, one of our performance coaches. Hey, Eddie. Thanks for uh, letting me drop in here today. It's great to have you here for this interview. Now, um, really excited to talk with Ira Harris. Now, uh, Ira, long time. Long time. Mm -hmm. It was like the veteran status. This is this is when I was on the trading floor. I'd look up to these guys. All right. Uh, it was really great to have him uh, come on and do this interview. Uh, he's a longtime futures trader who started on the floor of the CME and later became a member of the CME board. Yeah, this is exciting. I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing this interview with you guys. It's uh, you know he's one of the idols that I've looked up to growing up in this industry. Hearing the stories of the floor, even in my experience on the floor, it's uh, it's pretty awesome. I am excited. Right. Well, you know what? Um, without further ado, let's get this started here, and uh, let's start it out. My conversation with longtime futures trader Ira Harris. Awesome. All right, so we've got Ira Harris here with us. Thanks, Eddie. Th thanks for having me. Very nice to have you here. And, uh, you know, um, we were talking uh, prior before this uh, this uh, interview that uh, the years that we have had on the trading floor and, um, you know, I, I had a lot of good times on the trading floor. And uh, I tell you, but uh, the stress factor compared from open outcry to electronic trading uh, is, is a big difference, but it still it still hinders the word stress. I don't know which you find more stressful. Um, I liked the floor because the floor generated an energy. I mean, I was trading off the floor for a long time anyway, but I would go down to the floor to get re-energized because it's an unbelievable feeling. It was. It, there was nothing like it. Um, I can't think of anything comparable to that. And, and remember, the thing is, when we were on the trading floor, it was like uh, we each had our own 12 by 12 square we stood on. And uh, that was uh, was your your home base, but uh, Ira, you've got uh, areas of opportunity, markets of worry. Um, you want to give us a little insight on uh, what we're talking about on those? Well, we can go big picture, which is longer term. Okay, I have concerns, and they're shorter terms. Uh, you know, everybody is so complacent here, and I, I think you've you, you've alluded to that in your previous shows with people. There is a complacency that has taken place in the marketplace, and a lot of that is due because of the belief that the central banks are there to save everybody. They've created this phenomenal safety net of continually pumping liquidity into the system. And what the liquidity has done is, let me go economic terms, uh, they've crushed risk premiums across a whole lot of asset classes. So when, even if earnings, I know the earnings have been better than projected, but I could argue about those earnings because a lot of those earnings have been engineered by companies doing stock buybacks or raising their dividends, and they're doing it a lot of them through borrowed money. It's not do, it's not through earnings. It's not through cash flow. So they're they're engineering your balance sheets. So when you take on debt to pay, you know, for equity, 
that trade will eventually, you know, as, as they reallocate, you know, assets either because interest rates go higher or earnings fail to materialize to the expected numbers, those will, re, those will reverse. And even um, other things can make that reverse too. You know, that's why a lot of people are nervous about what comes out of the tax discussions in Washington. Because if um, the, they start to limit the amount of interest deduction, that's going to affect the entire United States system because as I've maintained for 35 years, we don't have capitalism, we have debt, debtism because right, we, right. Re, we reward borrowing. Whether it's good borrowing or bad borrowing, the system rewards it because you can deduct it from your taxes. I lived through the period in the early 80s of tax shelters, stupidest economic deals ever, mm-hmm. but they were done to generate tax losses. Right. So. Yeah, and what we're seeing here too is uh, the talk about the the tax uh, right now is affecting uh, international financial markets. You know, it's not just affecting uh, you know United States. I mean, we, we're seeing that uh, uh, affecting the Asian markets, affecting the European markets, affecting the, the British markets, and uh, it's they're all sort of waiting for us to to step forward and uh, make a decision. Yes. It's a, of course, and uh, what you know, this is you know, as Bismarck famously said, if you watch the legislative process, it's like sausage making. It's really ugly to watch, but the end product tastes good. Oh, I like that one. That's <laughs> yeah, a good one. Uh, yeah, Bismarck could discuss that. Now, there there seems to be a lot of concern out there, or let's just say concern that markets aren't concerned. Uh, is this a hangover from the pain around the financial crisis in two thousand eight? Or is it the uh, complacency setting in? Uh, there's, it's the complacency factor. People are just so comfortable here. And again, makes me nervous. Uh, and I'm not a big equity guy. I, I own more equities over the last four or five years in my personal account because, of, you know, as you and I know, I can take as much risk on a daily basis as I want. I don't need to take risk with my retirement money. So I've been more right. cautious in the bonds. But... They chased me out of the bonds. Whatever bonds I had bought in 2007, 2008, because I actually, and I'd written and talked about it on mega television shows, I saw this coming, so I, I ran for cover in the debt markets. So I had liquidated, but over the last five years, I've owned more stocks than I've ever owned as a percentage of my wealth, and now I'm starting to unwind. All right, now, now let's break it down. What do you mean unwind? I'm starting to sell some of these off, and people say, you know, I... I when people say, well, you know, my, my um, uh, financial advisor says I'm going to have a tax hit or my accountant says I'm going to have. These are long term capital gains yeah. on things that I had nothing to do with outside of maybe some astute picking, which was work. So I had to do with that. If you can tell me I can pay a 20 percent capital gain on all my earnings, you know what? Sign me up. I'll pay my taxes. I'll, I'll 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 do it on Donald Trump's postcard. Here it is, <laughs> and and so I don't know why people, are, and you know what, and and this isn't a political statement. What I'm going to say, but on November 9th, a year ago, if I had said, if you had had me on this show, and I would have said to you, oh, in a year's time, the the uh, uh, S and P market's going to be up 22 percent, your listeners would have you, you would have yeah. said, lock that guy up. He needs some Prozac. He's out of his friggin' mind. <laughs> you know what? You're exactly right too, and. And uh, as we can see, you know these markets; these markets are running. Now, you mentioned bonds. Um, we talked about equities. Now, everyone's pointing to equities and bonds as markets that are overpriced. Uh, 
Is that where we're starting to see the worry, or is this been? Well, when we talk, the bond markets are severely overpriced. And why do I say that? Bubbles are defined by markets that are devoid of the fundamentals. It's like the dot-com. You, live, you and I lived through the oh, dot-com. Yeah. Yep. I mean, we'd stand on the floor. I knew what was hot because I'd stand at, at the uh, machine where people would pr- would punch in their stock and what they were looking at. I'd go, okay, this isn't play. This isn't play. That's all you needed. And I'd look at these companies, and by any metric that I could possibly measure, it was ridiculous. Right. So that went up. The NASDAQ especially went up. Totally devoid of any economic fundamentals. Totally devoid. And it ended when? When uh, Time Warner bought AOL. AOL. And I had had a conversation that day with a very my mentor. And he said, what do you think about that deal? I said, you now have a way to value this stuff. I said, it's over. And that was the high of the market. Right. Yeah, right. I, 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 right. Unfortunately, I didn't take advantage of it to the extent I should have. But that, w- that was uh, absolutely what happened. Now... Ira, I know that uh, you spend a lot of time, uh, a lot of work, uh, thinking about the best way to structure trades given the macro trends that you see coming. Can you give us some insight into that process? Yeah, you know, and sure. You know, and I know people say, why would you tell anybody what you do? Well, here's my response to you. I spend 14 hours a day reading. I'm a voracious reader. I, I read everything because I have to. Because in my mind, I'm competing against Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley. They've got teams of people. Right. All I have is encyclopedic knowledge of markets and, and market actions and prices and how to look at things with flows. But I have to do the work. And I wish you know it wasn't so. But it, and now with the internet, the information is so much more readily available. What should be less work is more work. Because right. everything links to another, and oh, I gotta maybe I should read that myself. You know, that was when we were on the trading floor. It was like a market would move, and it's like we were in the pit. We didn't have computers. I don't even think we had. Did we have internet? No, we had phone calls. We had rotary phones. No, we had the the touch tone phones. But it would be, you know, why did the market move? And, and my direct would be to ask one of the phone clerks, check with the, you know, check with the, check with your, your, your trader, find out because they had ways of, we had the, we had the Reuters board, um, right. you know, up top, but we would get that as economic numbers would come out and, and, and sort of a delay on what happened, what transpired. But now I tell you, uh, you got that stuff, you know, knock on your door right away. You got that information, you know, why markets are moving and it's, it's two different worlds. It, it, Hundred percent. I used to have two clerks stand on my shoulders to put orders in because I was trading bonds at the Seawall. I was trading life stuff. So, and when new when market action didn't feel right, but I also had because of I have a very deep knowledge in currency trading. I had contacts that I used to do a lot of business with, but by the mid nineties it had ceased because there was really no money to be made. So I had bank guys who would call me. So if they would hear something and they would ask me to verify it from what I was, I said, wait a minute, you guys have all the tools there. But there was always a give and get, you know, right. they wanted because they wanted to know what was going on on the floor. Believe me, the IMM was moving a lot of currency markets. And when I stopped doing with them, they would get blindsided because they didn't know some big orders or some huge orders that would come through. And they wanted to have, be privy to that. Right. Um, now, what's your typical holding period? And we're talking about the, your, your trades and stuff. And. Um, what is your typical holding period? Well, it'll depend on how much I believe in it. Not all trades do I believe in the same amount because some are, will give me really strong technical indicators. 
So trades where my fundamentals and the technicals line up perfectly, mm-hmm. it could be a week or two. And trades where I'm just trading, feeling the market, it could be 10 minutes. So right. it's some different. I'm not a I'm not a speed trader. I was never a good scalper in the pit. Um, was never my strength because I I was always thinking about things too much to be a good scalper. I had too big an opinion. It, that's death for a scalper. You know, you just want to in and out, in and out, and provide liquidity to the markets all day. And I respect that immensely. Just was not my strength. Right. Now, how do you think about the shorter term traders? Uh, is there any way that they can take advantage of these same uh, macro themes? Yes. You know what? Do your work. And as I caution people all the time, know your risk parameters, especially in today's electronic markets, because you can avail yourself of some of these what I call whoosh actions in the market, swift actions like we saw uh, last Friday. Somebody came in. I didn't know who or what. Somebody sold 40,000 contracts of gold. On the COMEX in a very short period of time, broke the market ten dollars right. quick, quick. But then the market kind of stabilized, so I was actually able to get long some, almost at the bottom because I had orders in ahead of time. Going well, where would I like to enter this market based on some other spread trades I was doing? I needed the gold leg, and I got filled on that. And I didn't know what happened. I, I'm looking for news to justify a ten, twelve dollar break, and it turned out that there was somebody. Somebody I'm not. That's right. a big statement, somebody, but that's what the, and it seemed to be pretty accurate because when I went to check the volume bars, which I do, uh, as well as price bars, it was, it was a huge sale. Um, right. So you you can do absolutely, but be patient. If you try to outrun the high speed, you're not going to do it. Know what your levels are and wait for them to get to you. They'll fill you. It's like t- today, if we look at the S and P, if you were you know if you were looking to buy on the break. You got a significant break in the market, is you know, as we sit here, it's come back, you know, quite a bit. So if you had a low risk play there, you just have to wait for it. If it doesn't happen for you, don't get frustrated. Right. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. Another bus is going to come, and you'll be able to catch that. Um, now, um, if I can ask you, now I know that uh, you were highly respected on the floor. Uh, I know that uh, when I was on the floor and I saw Ira zipping by real quick, it's more or less that uh, he knew what was going on, and I wish I could have followed you. And did ex- uh, well-respected and very successful on the floor. Uh, but if you could, share with us here t- your top two or three, let's say, pieces of advice for, for, for any trader out there. Anyway, and let me and thank you for the compliment. I was always speeding around because so much of my trades are, are cross trades where I'm always doing one leg. I'm always looking for relative value plays. So if I got one legged up and I, I had to go do the trade myself because I you know may have been busy, so you'd see me running around. But uh, yeah, it was, I mean I'd be sweating bullets by the end of the day. Um, my. Uh, so some of my favorite trades, or, or what, what do I see? Some of the some advice that we can that you would you would give just any trader out there. Oh, some you, of the basics. You you have to first of all establish what your loss parameters are, because if you just put on a trade, and treat this like it was a casino, and you t- treat this like gambling, you have no you have no hope in this. And the worst thing that happens is that the first one is a winner, because then you you know the more you do that, but. This is not a game about breaking even. So you're going to have to take losses. It's like I would tell my kids when I said, 
probably seven to eight decisions I make a day are wrong. I just hope out of the ten, the three are right, and they'll take. And that to me is the greatest standard. I don't need to be right ten out of ten. I need to be right three out of ten to have a very good day. And make sure those three are very right. Right, and the right. losses are very small. I learned that from my mentor, uh, Lenny Feldman, who was just to the day he died in uh, December of 2015 when he was 89 years old. If you know how to take losses, you will stay alive. And that's what it is. You want to be here because you don't know what the next minute's going to bring. You don't know what the next hour is. You don't know what the next day is. So you want to make sure you can still do this. How can you ask yourself? What, what, what questions would you ask yourself or what statements would you tell yourself that this is not a good trade, I need to get out and move on to the next one? Because if I see, I, I do so much work on the fundamentals. And I say, well, this ought to happen, especially like when numbers come out. Right. I, I've, I'm well prepared as to what the market consensus is. Mm-hmm. And I know what the momentum has been before or if there has been a trend. So I'll watch that and say, hmm, and, I, and I'll step in here because well, the market is having a recoil action, but here's a low-risk play. And then if it continues to run over me, I go, this is something is just wrong here. Or I'm looking at, because so many I think, see is relationships. So it's like Thursday and Friday of last week. The bonds and equities were both getting hit both days. Mm-hmm. And again, then the 40,000 gold. So my first inclination was somebody's unwinding some of these risk parity trades that they all have on because the the equities were getting hit too hard especially the european equities which we can talk about the german index last week did something that very important for for somebody who's a technician a chartist they put in all-time highs last week the dax made all-time highs and i pointed this out in my blog uh, on sunday night and then they closed below the previous week's close let me say that again. All-time highs closing below the previous week's low on a Friday. The, the weekly closes are very important, and it closed three-quarters of a percent below the previous week's low. That is a major signal. Now, we've had these signals. The NASDAQ gave us one in June, similar, all-time highs closing below, below and, it, and the NASDAQ was actually weak for, uh, it traded down for a week or two, but then resurrected itself. Then the S&Ps made the same uh, key, what they call a key reversal move in August never really panned out. So, I, I you know, I, this one has to bear fruit. But if you've watched the, the DAX this week, it was down at the, today's bottom. It was probably down 3.5% for the week. Right, it got Fairly hit. sizable move. It it's hit. come rallying back now. But those are indicators. So when I look at those, those are the things you have to find. Define your risk accordingly. Always know, I can't stress it enough, know what your risk point is. I never enter a trade without knowing where I'm wrong. I worry, but the market will tell me when I'm right. I have to worry about what I'm wrong and how I maneuver that. Exactly, exactly. Now, Ira, let me ask you a question. Um, beginning your career in trading, what was your influence? Who was your mentor? How did you get on the trading floor? <laughs> That's uh, one of the great stories. Um, this is the last place I ever wanted to be was on the training floor. This man, Lenny Feldman, who was a good friend of my dad's, I was in graduate school, getting ready to leave graduate school, and he calls me up. He says, your dad tells me you you learn you know a lot about foreign currencies. And they're just, it was 1975, 76, so the currency trade was in its infancy. Right. You know, 
the brilliant mind of Leo Muhammad to be able to see what was coming and put these contracts into place in 1972, they were a very small thing development. So he called me up. He said, hey, kid, as he he would talk to me. I said, yeah, Len, what, what can I do? Now, this is Lenny. When I was in, playing high school football, I, I'm, I played in the city, so it's not like the suburbs, but I was the quarterback my senior year, and I'm, and he comes to see me play with my dad. They took the, a day. And it, this is a guy who, when I'm coming off the bus with all the other, he, turn, he yells at me. He says, what's the spread? Hmm. <laughs> okay, so yeah, he gives you a mindset of what. Idea. Yeah, and, and believe me, he's one of my best friends, and I couldn't have had a better mentor. But so he asked me, he said, uh, you know, I, I want to get long to German marks, but there's the election, and what could be the impacts? So I, I wrote him a three page paper and sent it to him, and it proved out very well. So he, that's when he called. He says, hey, I hear you're leaving school. I said, Yeah, I am. He said, What do you want to do? I said, I'm going to go to Washington, D.C. with my knowledge base. I was studying. My expertise that I developed through some great professors was on multinational corporations and global capital flows. So that's how I learned about currencies. So he says, I'm opening up a currency arbitrage. Why don't you run it? I said, I'm not working at that shithole. Excuse me. Uh, I said, I hate the people. I said, it's, he says, I'm telling you what's going to happen here. Then he called me again about two months later. I was busy uh, catching up on reading novels, which I had really had no time for when I was in college. And refing high school basketball in the city. So uh, he says, look it, you're wasting your time. Come and work for me. I said, oh, let me think about it. Then he called me again about a month later. He says, this is the last time I'm telling you. It was probably February of 1977 because I remember we went out and watched the uh, the Ali. Uh, Foreman? No, it wasn't Ali Foreman, but it was playing at a, uh, we, he took me out to dinner and we, uh, Ali, uh, maybe in the last, no, 77 was probably too late for Frazier, but whatever, maybe Spinks or somebody, it was one of those, so we went to the fights and I said, okay. He says, oh, do me a favor, will you? So, you know, to the day he died, he would always make fun of me going, I thought you were only coming for a couple of days to see how it is. You know, I can't get rid of you. So, fell in love with it. It was made for me. There you go. My same situation, too. I was, um, basically, I was invited to have some pizza with my sister. Uh, she was in the S&P. She was filling in the S&P. And uh, I just took a trip there. And I, I walked in the place and, and if you ever have the opportunity to see the trading floor, it's like nothing that you've seen. It's 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 maybe like an arena, if you want to call it that, something like that. But um, you know, my first initial take on it was like this is just complete chaos, and like you said, the asshole. Um, it, it almost you know it was like how does anybody get anything done with with the chaos? But you know, eventually. It, it, it sort of grew on me. Then I had an opportunity like, like you did, and uh, I, I took advantage of that opportunity. And 30 years later, uh, you know, I'm talking to you and we're asking questions here. I, I'll tell you a funny antidote to that. And this is a true story. Um, I had a sixth grade teacher, school public schools, Catherine Russell, good old Irish, tough Irish, never married. My three older brothers had her, and she knew my I mean, she had a... Great, she was a great teacher, but a hard-nosed Irish woman, and she grew up on a farm outside Peoria, which back in that she had they had fifteen hundred acres of corn and bean, which, you know, we're talking about the sixties. That was a very sizable group. right. So, one of our field trips, and we, her and I had a great rapport. I was just great. I was a really good student, but I, I was a care, you know, and I was an so she really 
and she had my brothers and stuff. But she takes us to the Board of Trade for a field trip. And we're standing in the gallery and we're watching. Mm-hmm. And she yells out. She looks at me. She says, Harris, this is for you. This place is for you. Really? Yeah. And I saw her. Uh, my grammar school had a 75-year reunion where they invited everybody. Mm-hmm. And she was not well, but she was, and I walk in, and now I haven't seen, this was, you know, about five or six years ago, and she walks in, and she looks at me and says, Harris. I said, Miss Russell, how are you? She says, good. She says, I'm not well. And I told her the story. She says, I don't remember it, but it doesn't surprise me. Right. It's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. Now, since we're on the topic of stories and I know that a lot of uh, traders love to hear uh, the days of the open outcry. Um, share with me one of your most memorable stories on the trading floor. Something um, that you witnessed. I know there. I've got a ton of stories, but what was at least some of your favorite things that happened on the trading floor that you remember and, and uh, oh, can share? Uh, um, so many. So, uh, I mean... During the S the nineteen eighty seven S and you know, I was trading the currencies, and it was really I and I was managing a fund at the same time, and, and investors, and we were short the S and P's because the technical formation was just so good. But that you know, people, somebody said to me, "Well, that was." I said, "No, that was part of the the better trade was that I had bought the interest rate contracts on that Monday morning, and my Tuesday had gotten out of them, but that was a far better play, and with the currencies." The metals were wrong because the gold and silver first rallied as the world was melting down, as you know the Fed was going to pour all this liquidity in. But that trade didn't last long. It right. taught me a lot about the metals market, which I love to trade. But that trade didn't last long. And if you stay overstayed that, and I lost some money with that because that started to melt away quickly because people were just liquidating everything. Right. You know, so it, I learned a lot about, about that aspect of risk flows. Um, the events I saw because people, some of the clearinghouses were they were pulling people off the floor because I remember that they weren't well yeah. capitalized. So right. guys were coming to me, go, we need you in the S and P pit. I go, that's not where my home is. That's not where I'm trading. I'm going to take. No, no, you got to go in there. Where were you coming with the? Did you trade Swiss yen? Well, I, okay. I, I jumped I, around all the. Currencies. That's why I saw you running around all the time. Yeah. You were just hitting all yeah, the. Yeah, I, I would. You know, I had different years where I would spend depending upon what I thought. Mm-hmm. So I was probably in the Swiss pit at that time, which was busy. But they said, "Go to the S and P pit. We we need traders. We need people to make markets." Well, I couldn't get a good geographical location, so I noticed. I said, "Wait a minute." I'm just a dumping ground here. Every time I open my mouth to make a market, I'm standing down the middle, and I'm yeah, getting I'm getting all the trades I don't want. So I I said no, it lasted about two hours. I said I'd be better outside the pit. My word, it was just a fact. It was a madhouse. Right. So not necessarily a good thing, but it taught me, you know, sometimes. And I have to respect the people who were, who were there. They had first bite at it, you know, whether I'm, and it didn't matter whether you turned the market or not. Nobody cared. But I will tell you a funny story from that week about risk. Um, okay, please do. Uh, a friend of mine who's a very big, successful trader, name is not important, he calls me up on uh, Wednesday, close to the close, and there were no mini S&Ps, were only the big. Big ones, right. So he says, well, how do you feel? I said, yeah, I think this is, we've seen the bottom. He says, okay. He says, I feel the same way. Now, this is a big trader. He says, let's split a contract. So we bought one big contract. We put it in his account. I said, okay, we're at risk together. Because 
we were afraid. I don't care how much anybody you know, was. You were right. afraid, right? That one contract. By the close of I think uh, Friday, because we got out, we split thirty-seven thousand dollars on, on one, one lot. Contract. On a one lot. This, these That's are two, two fairly. He was much better capitalized than I. We wouldn't take the risk. <laughs> but see, that's just it. I mean, even even the biggest uh, biggest traders, the most successful traders, you know, they don't want to deal with something to that extent. You know, and it, it was a, I mean, you had to be a daredevil local to be in there. You know what? Things that are career riskers. There's not a trade I've ever made that's worth risking my career. I, I worked too hard to build up because I, I I literally started with. I don't nine thousand dollars in my account total. Now, yes, I, you know what? Uh, I had the way paved to get the seat because I was running this or learning how to run this operation. Um, but and my first trade was a loser. I can tell you exactly what it was. I did a five by five long Swiss and short uh, D mark trade because my father said, "Well, you got to get your feet wet and you got to learn." He said, "I think there's a good trade." It was a loser, but it taught me. I got right right out of it, so I blew ten percent of my capital. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was getting out. Now, l let me ask you: after that trade, what was on your mind? Was it sort? Of, was it a? Uh, um, what am I doing here? Or you know what? I need to. I need to tie things down a little bit, batten down the hatches, and keep walking forward. Yeah, uh, and, and you know what? I was uh, not that I, did, I respected my father immensely. Uh, but I was going to do my own work. That wasn't something. So there was no belief in the trade. It was, you know, guys would tell you all the time you could stand on the floor. And everybody thought that was an advantage. I don't want to hear what other, you know, people would call me. I'd be upstairs, you know, reading some stuff. And they go, oh, so-and-so. I don't care. That's, that's, not, that's not for me because I don't believe in it enough. Then I'm just, you know, you know it's like I don't care what Goldman's doing. I don't care. It, it means not a lot to, because if I've done my work, I have my own view, and if they agree with me, fine. And so, you know, there are trades where people, you know, everything's the unemployment number now. I can remember right. when the unemployment number didn't mean anything to anybody. Yeah, a lot of those economic numbers have come and gone. I mean, yeah. there was we had the leading indicator uh, that was uh, that was a big number, and everybody be sort of nervous on that one. But uh, it's it sort of uh, it it takes second stage now. Now we've got our you know we've got our EIA number and the non-farm and the the unemployment, jobless, and you know those those had effect. And uh, but right now you know the other ones that were there were numbers that. Uh, really, I mean, they're out there, but they don't really affect the market too much. The trade numbers back in the 80s were the biggest numbers of all, the, the uh, trade deficit. In one of the craziest days I ever saw, a trade number, they were looking, I, I believe it was, they were looking for a $13 billion deficit, and the number came in at 11. And the dollar rallied. They just, there was selling like you've never seen. I'm going, this is too, it's, and I'm and I'm starting to put on a trade that I liked, and I'm getting run over. But I'm it's a relative value trade, so I'm I'm uh, involved in one end of it and selling the other end. And I'm first getting run over, and then but by the end of the day, it was a monster winner. But I took that was almost uh, I, I no, it wasn't that big because I, I didn't violate my rule about career risk. But as you're watching it going. Are we crazy here? And now that number doesn't mean anything. anything the trade right. number comes out that people. Uh, you know. 
I do the same. They roll their eyes. Now, let me ask you now. On the trading floor, we saw. Uh, I'm going to say you can call it the domino effect. Like uh, you know, if something did come out, everybody would jump on board, and you'd see these markets screaming north or screaming south. Um, do we see that? I know we see that here in electronic, but. What's a difference that you can give us as far as the electronic rally, the electronic break versus the open outcry rally versus the open outcry break? Oh, it's, it's vastly different. First of all, when human beings have control of it, there's only so fast that they can move. The electronic, it's so fast, and, and that's the thing. You know, when I, I was very fortunate to be selected to design Globex. So I learned uh, with other people, and because uh, they wanted my input as a the way I traded. Uh, so we designed it, and I learned then that these. That's why the, the CME as governors has always had limits on where price movements to stop the system, because as we started looking at it, these can the- theoretically go to zero. Right. We need you needed that you, that uh, that break because right? because the algorithm is built to just keep going to the next price. Where a, a real live order filler says, "Well, wait, hold on." They they wait for bids. Now it may be lower than, but at least they let them rather than going to zero. There's no going to zero, and and people say you can't go to zero. I said you're right, and we learned that on May six two thousand and ten with the flash crash, there were a lot of stocks that traded for a penny which is zero because they couldn't go to zero because they'd have to be delisted. So a penny mm-hmm. was the lowest value. And there were a multitude of stocks that traded down to a penny. They took all those trades out because they had to because it was an embarrassment for the exchanges. But I had a stock, um, FAX, which is the, I still own some of it. It's it's a, it's an Austrian uh, Australian and New Zealand bond fund. Now, okay, so it had a 5.8% yield trading at the price that it did, because that's why I owned it. It was a very safe asset at the time. It went to a penny, so I calculated out what the effective yield was on this. It was three. It was 3,600%. Seriously, I couldn't buy it there. Right. And so they took out everything except for, I think they allowed it to drop 40%. But it went to a penny, and there were a lot more stocks that went to a penny than people even know. That's why somebody called me. Uh, Gretchen Morgan from the New York Times called me. Uh, let's see, that took place probably about two in the afternoon. She said, "Okay, I know I can trust your judgment." Was that a fat finger mistake? I said, "Absolutely, positively, no way, no way." Because when I saw what stocks were driven, there's no way because a lot of these wouldn't be in any index that would react to a fat. So it was something else in the system. We still don't have an answer, by the way. The SEC, has, ne- who has spent supposedly a lot of years investigating what happened, still has not come back with a reason. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I want to know. But the CME didn't suffer it. You know, the NASDAQ did, and they had a black eye. So then, uh, what's the name, Bob um, uh, Greifeld. Then they put in governors themselves. But the New York Stock Exchange also got smart and put in governors so that the market could catch its breath. That's all it does. Right. It's, it allows other market makers to catch up because otherwise if you're not in the game as that cascading effect takes place it's going to zero for the most part right so the uh, the financial circuit breaker now we talk about uh, we talked about uh, some of the trades some of the stories that you had um, you mentioned the crash uh, scariest trade you ever made 
Does it in, does it involve uh, any big event, or was this something that happened yeah. outside of one? Yeah, 1989. I, with all the work that I do, sometimes I get too far ahead of myself, and I had to learn a very important story, uh, a lesson. Um, the, the Brits were going to join the uh, uh, single currency. They were going to peg themselves to the single currency and join the... There was no uh, euro yet, but it was the uh, ECU or the EMU, whatever, and they were going to tailcoat the German mark. So it was, there was a lot of guessing as to what level that was going to be. And I can still tell you. So they were talking about 2.9 D marks to a pound. I said, they're crazy. That's, that makes the pound too, too high a value. I said, 2.7 should be, and then it would be able to trade a range around it. So my bet, and I had the biggest position I ever had on. And I said, you know, and I knew the announcement was coming. And, instead, you know, I, I made a, a, a bet on what what my work said, you know, should have been da-da-da. And I learned to pay more attention to what the market is telling you because there's always people inside. And the fact that the markets weren't doing it. So I had a stop in. I had, my sister was working for me, and I said, look, it, it gets to this level. I don't care. I'm wrong, and you have to cover I said, I'm not good, because I knew I would halt a little bit. I said, so she got me out as good as humanly possible, and because everybody, there were other people looking for the same type of thing, the market rallied to its upper band that it could ever move to. And then they got out. Well, and, but I was out, so it was the biggest losing day I ever had, but it was the best losing day. If you ask me, it traded great. Because I had a I had a position, I knew that I was at risk. She pulled. She did not hesitate for a minute. She did exactly what I, and then the, then it continued because it would have been really close to a disaster for me. Had catastrophic. And then, yeah. but this corollary to the story was, of course, by 1992 September was George Soros supposedly breaking the Bank of England. Mm-hmm. Well. I mean, I could see what was developing with the way they were playing with their interest rates, that they were trying to hold something that was unholdable. So I put on the position, which I... And whatever I lost in 1989, I made three times back, so... There you go. But I listened to the market rather than telling the market what it should do, and that's a very important lesson. Now, Ira, um, I've got a top-step trader time machine. I want to take you for a ride, okay? So... If uh, if and when we do go back into time, um, one thing that you'd like to tell yourself that uh, you started out, what would that be? About how I how I trade the markets. Anything. Oh. If uh, you were to go back in time yeah. and you saw yourself and you got to, you got to, let's just say you got a, you got a minute to give yourself some advice. What would that be? Well, basically the story I just told. Listen to the market. Stop telling the market what it ought to do, and listen to what the market is trying to tell you, which is a corollary to be, stay humble. You know what? Arrogance is a terrible thing. And you don't want to think, oh, I know. My, I'm so full of doubt when I put on a trade and I'm going. Why am I the only one who could see this? This trade makes, makes so much sense. Uh, so I'm always full of doubt, and that's a learned trade. I, I doubt my, you know, I, I doubt myself, and I go, well, yeah, I could. But why am I the only one who could see this? This is, you know, makes so much sense to me. Let me ask you something. How do you back yourself? How, 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 if how, you're doubting yourself, yeah. 
how do you commit to yourself saying, okay, this is the correct move? I, I establish my risk. And if, if it's wrong, the market will take me out, and I'll go, okay, let me look at it again. What did I miss here? What could possibly have been going around around this that I should have seen? Okay. Now, I wrote through the many years of you trading and probably a nice collection of cool things that you have. Um, I'm going to ask you, as, uh, as a broadcaster here, uh, about your favorite, favorite toy. What What's your favorite toy? It could be anything as far as a house, a car, a watch, anything to that extent. Um, uh, I, I don't have a favorite car. I did have a 62 Corvette that I bought in 1986, a fuel-injected Corvette. What year was that? I bought it in 19... It was a 62. Oh, my goodness. Nice car. It was a great car, uh, fuel-injection system, because... Uh, but that was, you know, it had too much work, so I actually sold it to Pat O'Connor on the, on okay. the floor. Yeah, Pat. Right. Um, but it was a great car. Uh, and I bought it only because when I, I'm, I have three older brothers. My oldest brother had a Corvette in 1967. I started driving in 1969, and he would never let me drive the car. So, of course, my brother and I are very close. He's uh, nine years older than myself. But So, as soon as I got the car, I drove right to his house and started honking. And it, and I said, and he comes running out. I go, you're not driving this. And I went around the block, and then I came back. <laughs> but but as a kid growing up, I had two favorite toys: uh, Johnny Seven rifle, which I love playing with. Now the Johnny Seven, explain what it is, what it did, uh, because I know that um, some of our newer traders, yeah. I know, gosh, we don't buy toys anymore. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And nobody buys guns anymore, but it fired seven different things. It had plastic bullets. It had a grenade launcher. It was pretty cool because we used to play a lot of Army. You know, that was one of the games you right. play with your friends. And then I had uh, my Kenner building set with the girders and the panels. I loved that. That was, like, one of my favorite toys. All right. I really appreciate you being with us here today. Um, great stories, great information, and uh, I'm sure that uh, a lot of us that uh, – have listened to this have uh, some some great takeaways and uh, can bring with us on our daily trades and just our daily lives uh, but um, what I'd like to know is uh, where can people find you online I know that uh, uh, we're building a fan base here and uh-huh. uh, we want to know um, where online can we can we can we read your blog uh, or, okay so if you go to yrahrris.com Click on that, and then Notes from Underground will pop up. That's the blog, which I take from Dostoevsky, and its tagline is 2 plus 2 equals 5. is a beautiful thing, because that's what Dostoevsky said. It's it's really a poke at the rationalists who think everything can be built on models. and So that's just the way my mind thinks. I, As my brother toasted at my wedding to my wife, my wife's a CPA and an accountant, and he said, this is the most perfect marriage ever. It's Janice the balance. It's Janice the accountant, and I were the unbalanced. You know, so that's who knows you better than your brother. So I, I see the world in a very unbalanced way, and uh, uh, so you go there, and it's free. You can register for it. And when I write, like I wrote Sunday night, um, and uh, hopefully I'll get some energy and write tonight. I don't write when there's nothing to write about, or the markets are like in this quiet stage I won't because it just gets too repetitive right well but, understandable but I cover what I think and you, we started out the conversation to me the most significant area to watch for the next two years 
is going to be Europe. Europe is a grave concern. It's one of the reasons it's complacent out there because the ECB has pushed interest rates to a very, uh, to, to a ridiculous, you know, if you want to see mispriced assets, the fact that the Italian government can borrow money, you know, 40, 50, 60 basis points cheaper than the U.S. government because they all believe that the ECB is going to guarantee that debt. Well, here's hoping, but the politics of Europe are very difficult. Tomorrow, in fact, as we sit here, Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, has made that her drop-dead day for putting together a coalition in Germany. Well, there's, we'll see if she'll be able to do this. Otherwise, they're going to have to go to a new election, which right. will not bode well for her. And more importantly, uh, and, I, and this is very important, is that the question is always going to be, who guarantees that debt? Right now, everybody thinks Germany guarantees it. But if the political situation in Germany changes... That question is going to be up in arms, and that's where the real risk is going to take place. Before we uh, before we part ways, my friend, what, what's your take? What's your take on the Brexit? I know that's uh, that's uh, it's been front and center. It's sort of taken the back seat. I know that uh, we've seen some movement in the British pound. What's what do you think that outcome is going to bring to Europe? It's. If if see Europe is mad at Britain because it's supposedly an indissolvable union. You know, in the United States we had an indissolvable union and we went to a civil war to preserve that indissolvable union. Europe is not quite that along yet. They've done this backwards because they've taken on the risk. They've and placed it all within the ECB, all the credit risk. It's all it lies in the European but they don't have the government in place that we had to make an indissolvable union. And Britain threatens it because they're leaving. So they want to punish them. Because, so they want to make it so draconian that nobody else could leave. And Greece really should have left at least a currency. It was a terrible thing. The Greek people have paid a terrible heavy price in order to bail out the German banks who own the Greek paper. But hmm. believe me, you, gotta, you have to look. And this is the things that I blog about. You know, I don't tout trades, so I'm glad we're talking about this. So... I will direct you to where I think and make you think about things and, oh, maybe there's an opportunity here. The Brexit for Britain is good because they do so, they run a huge trade deficit with the European Union. You know, Germany and Britain do huge amounts of trades. There's, the relationship is very deep. So while they're busy punishing them, they're going to punish themselves more because then the Brits will be free to get outside their claws and they can go out and make trade deals all over the place. Yeah, there'll be some pain, but everybody who predicted a major disaster mm -hmm. has been wrong, terribly wrong, you know, almost as wrong as what they thought would happen when Trump got elected with the markets. So, you know, what? but that's people who, and Eddie, you ask a great question, because as this guy Ben Hunt from Epsilon Theory, who's just great, and he makes everything about narrative. So the narrative we hear is the, is the consensus narrative of the mass media. It's in there. Well, Brexit is bad. Brexit is bad. Nobody bothers to look. The best thing that can happen to Britain is to get out under the aegis of having to guarantee the European debt. That's going to cost billions. And it's going to cost somebody, but I don't know when it's going to happen. I, sooner, I think, than most people think. Because Italy can't get, you know, every... You want to believe, so the narrative becomes, oh, things are much better in Italy. Really? Then why are the non-performing loans still 15 to 18% of bank uh, 
essence. Yeah, you know, so, exactly. And unemployment. I mean, they they, they parade around. They have a ten percent unemployment. Some countries, Italy has twelve percent. Spain still has sixteen percent. They they make this seem like it's if that kind of unemployment was here, we we would have a Chaos. political disaster. Yeah, yeah. All right. IraHarris.com. Y R A. H-A-R-R-I-S. Check it out. Bookmark it. Save it. And uh, Ira, thank you very much for being with us here. Pure. I love your t-shirt. Pleasure. (laughs) To the moon. To the moon, Alice. (laughs) All right, Ira. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Wow. Dan, great stuff from Ira. What do you think? Oh, wow. That was awesome. Now, Now, what did you pull away from that? There was a lot to pull away. Um, the one thing that really stuck out to me, you know, from the get-go was, uh, like I said before, is it's all about the trading floor. He talked a lot about the trading floor, the energy on the floor. Uh, for me, it was, you know, I grew up on the floor. been going down there since, you know, day I was born. And uh, so hearing some of these stories from my time when I was trading on the floor, it wasn't the excitement. It was slow. It was, you know, fading off. And uh, so getting to hear his stories about his experiences on the floor, the way the markets were moving, bouncing from pit to pit, you know, all over the place, that was, I mean, that's engaging to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then, uh, you know, when he was talking about his, uh, uh, when we had the uh, the crash and they asked him to come in the pit, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. and he's like, well, wait a minute. You know, he was in there for a few hours, like, wait a minute, man, I, I'm out of here. What's going on? Right. But so... So a lot of good stuff. What what else did you what else did you get uh, with the uh, with the interview? Um, you know, I his experience level is through the roof. I mean, he's a guy you look up to, and you know, you want to hear about him. You want to hear about his trading. Um, you know, one thing he was saying that was really interesting to me is he's talking about the S and P's, and you know, we're seeing those on this all time rally, just nonstop, buy it every day. It keeps moving, keeps moving, buy it, buy it, buy it, and now we're starting to see it slow down and. He even mentioned himself. He's like, you know, I'm starting to think, are we getting close to that top? Selling off his own stocks makes you it makes you think a little bit. Makes you uh, start wondering, okay, are we getting to that peak? If a guy like Ira's going to be willing to say, hey, I'm starting to sell it off, um, you know, I'm starting to I'm starting to wonder too. I've been saying it for two years. Even on the floor, I'd walk in every day and say, see you later, spooze. Yeah, they go and up. then they go up exactly, but yeah, the thing is that experience, trial and error. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just going through the process and back at you know back in the day when the when the market was, uh, it was just an enormous machine that uh, I, I, anywhere you'd go, any pit that you jump into at, at one certain point, and it, just the. Uh, the market movement and the screaming and the trading and the the chaos, but it was all controlled chaos. And uh, you know, Ira uh, he was right in the middle of all that and uh, uh, moving from the open outcry to electronic. A lot of traders have a problem doing that, but Ira uh, very successful. And I think one of the reasons is that he just just didn't assume that. Uh, Coming from the open outcry to electronic would uh, would transpose into an easy transition. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one thing he did mention is he read a lot. Now, I have a hard time reading. <laughs> you know, uh, it's not on the tube uh, or the television. Uh, you know, um, but the thing is, we're always talking about do your homework. 
all right? Don't shortcut yourself. Don't half-ass it. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what he did. He read, he read, he studied, he studied. And, uh, you know, at that point when, you know, he was reaching new levels of success, it wasn't easy. No. You know, it was not easy at all. It was very competitive. And, uh, you know, he filtered out all the noise and uh, kept the focus, kept the discipline, kept the patience. And that's a great formula for success. What what else did you get off the interview? Well, real quick, uh, to a point there, you made um, the education, don't half-ass it. That was something, uh, you know, my dad, he was a big trader, and I learned a lot of the stuff that I know from him. And he always, he's always told me, he goes, trading's like golf. When you're, you know, you're using the foot wedge and you're kicking it out, you're cheating there. No, when you're cheating in golf, when you do that, is yourself. Same things in trading. When you're half-assing it, when you're kind of cutting corners, you're only cheating yourself. Um, but another one I took away from Ira that he uh, he said that I preach day in and day out with all the traders I talk to is uh, never getting into those trades unless you know where you you want to be wrong first. So finding where that risk is, finding where that point of failure is in your trade. Never making that trade until you realize, until you know where that point of failure is. Otherwise, you're getting into a trade blind, and you have no idea where you're going to be wrong. Exactly. Um, yeah. And that's fun, basic fundamentals. Right. And one thing he did talk about, uh, which is something that was used in the open outcry, used in electronic trading, and uh, used in a good marriage, is listening. All right. Uh, listen to the market. All right. What's the what's the market telling you? I know it sounds it's it's easy to say and hard to do, but you know once you immerse yourself into a market and you you start to know the market, you start to know characteristics of a market. Not to say that it's it's always going to be a play, but uh, you know how a market acts and reacts. That's exactly what you need to do. You need to let the market tell you what it's going to do. Because the thing is, you know what, we're the little fish here, and uh, there's no way that uh, you know we're going to be able to conquer such a big product. So listen to the market, and I'm going to put a period after that. What else did you get off this interview? Well, you know what, following up, listening to that market, uh, one of the last things he started talking about before he talked about his uh, 62 Fuley, which I'm a big fan of the car, his vet he had. Um, but he finished off with staying humble. Um mm-hmm. You know, we can come into these markets, we can have a huge day, we can make great money, and we have to remind ourselves coming into the next day, all that's forgotten. The market doesn't care how much capital you have, doesn't care how much money you made the day before, doesn't care about any of that, doesn't care who you are. You have to stay humble and realize that, you know, I can't do the same thing I did yesterday. This is a new market. This is a new day. I've got to come at it with the proper planning. I've got to come at this with the right mindset and realize there's going to be a point where enough is enough. I've got to call it here as opposed to pushing it and saying, hey, but I'm a great trader, so I know I can do this. Right, exactly. So I tell you, Ira Harris, endless stories. Uh, I'm going to tell you something, Danny. Um, When uh, we didn't have the mic recording, I was was just sitting here absorbing all the stories beforehand. Mm -hmm. And... When we were done, he still had more stories. I wish I would have let the mic or the the record just keep rolling. Just keep going. Just keep rolling. But I'm sure that we'll we'll be uh, we'll be getting Ira back again. There's just so much information, knowledge, and 
Uh, I tell you, great stories. It, and from, it's always it's always great hearing those the old time stories. That's what you know. We are we're all interested in it. That's the exciting stuff. And hearing those things and being able to hear it from a guy like him is pretty awesome. Awesome is uh, is a very good word to describe it. <laughs> so, Danny, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, great having you here in the Top Step Trader Broadcast booth. I appreciate it. I had a great time. All right, traders. As always, we appreciate you spending some time with us. Give us feedback at Limit Up at topsteptrader.com and if you got time please go to the iTunes and leave us a review thank you so much and uh, we'll see everybody next time thanks Dan thank you we'll see ya Futures in Forex trading contain substantial risk and is not for every investor. An investor could potentially lose all or more than their initial investment. Risk capital is money that can be lost without jeopardizing one's financial security or lifestyle. Only risk capital should be used for trading, and only those with sufficient risk capital should consider trading. Past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results.